out, and through Jesus Christ we pray this. Amen. 1 John 2, 1 gives us our assurance of forgiveness. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. And 1 John 3.18 are guidelines for living. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Once again, as you're able, please rise and join us as we continue our worship.
Father in heaven, we just give you praise and glory and honor for being such a great God. We come to you with grateful hearts that in the midst of trials and tribulations that your peace still reigns in our hearts. And it's your perfect peace that gives us comfort and strength in the time of trials and tribulations and also joy when we can share the joy of you. And Lord, today, as these folks give, I know they give because they're glad in their hearts and out of gratitude for what you've done for them. Continue to bless them, Lord, and bless these gifts. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.
Let's come into the presence of the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence right now with grateful hearts. Hearts knowing that you're the sovereign God, the Lord of the universe, and you're in control of all that takes place. And we come to you right now for the people that are struggling, our brothers and sisters in Christ there in Afghanistan who are being taken to the wall, who are dying because they believe in you, Jesus Christ, who are being shot because on their phones is found a Bible app and they're being executed for a church that's being persecuted this very morning. Father God, we come to you and we bring them to you, Lord, and give them strength and give them courage and give them faith as they face their accusers. I pray, Father God, too, for our country and for the leadership, Lord, that, Lord, you will bring them to the point where they see they need to follow you and not their own agenda. That, Father God, that they will listen to you and not their brave, bold, prideful selves. I pray, Father God, too, for the brave men and women who are guarding this country and protecting it. Especially those who are right now in the airport that has been shut down. And for those brave men and women who died the other day by a bomb, not only those American Marines but also those people in Afghanistan of 150 that died. We just pray for their families as they go through that grief. And today, Heavenly Father, too, we come to you in our church with heavy hearts. I pray, Lord God, that, um, that Father God, that you could be with Chris and Marcia today as they are here with us. I pray, Lord, that you continue to strengthen them and give them their faith as they walk through this tragedy of their son dying this week. I pray, Lord, that they will feel you carry them when they can't even walk. That, Lord, that you'll bring comfort to their hearts and give them peace as they share the story and as they lift up you, Christ, who owned Brady and who loved him. I just pray, Father God, you give them that what they need. I pray also for Lucille and for Kay who are dealing with health issues. We pray for our brother Frank, who is right now having difficulty breathing, and it's getting more shallow. And as he comes to the close of his life, we pray if there's any way that in your plan you would heal him to do so. And if not, Lord, that you give him a comfortable and safe journey with his family as he leaves his life. We pray also to Father God for Joyce and also for Mary, who are struggling with their backs, for Casey and his back. We pray also, too, for the Spaulding family, Lord, and their loss. We pray also, too, for Betty and her husband, Howard, who still has this thing on his head, and I would pray for healing for it, Lord. We pray also, too, for others that we know of Christ that are struggling in their lives. I pray for the Hennessy family, who I did their funeral yesterday for Tina. I pray that, Mike, you'll give him comfort and for the rest of the family and their loss. And Father, there's others that we have on our minds right now that need our prayer. We know there's marriages that need mending and healing. And I just pray as they work through those difficulties that, Lord, you'll bring that complete healing that they need and they can enjoy a couple together and for their families. I pray also, too, Father God, for troubles in our society today. 
Lord, hear our prayers as we lift up those who are in need right now, those who are going through difficulties. That we lift them by name. You know what's going on in their situation. Hear our prayers, Lord. And now, Father, take these words. Make your Holy Spirit bring alive to us the word of God that we need to hear to refresh us this day. And in Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Many of us have been scratching our heads for the last 20, 30, 40, even 50 years. What's been going on in our society and in our world? I'm talking about oftentimes in passion, but we see the outbreak of what has happened in our society. To hear about a retirement home that a mailbox has to be removed because it's an American flag covering on it and it's offended somebody. Or to hear that a school has removed the flag because it has offended someone else. We hear of several colleges that have removed Christian organization because the name Christian or Christ has offended. We also hear about 9-11 last year when in Orange County, California, a high school group was invited to sing at the commemoration of the 9-11 attack in New York City. But then were asked just before they performed not to sing God Bless America or America the Beautiful because it named God in it. Where have we gone? Where have we come from? Oftentimes we get troubled by this. We know that the Bible is very firm and shares about how we're saved. But that's often been lost. We were living in a modern day that has been affected by really five different revolutions that took place in the world that has created this modern world that we're living in today. Two of them were built on biblical principles, especially the Exodus and Deuteronomy. And many of the Christian principles that French Revolution and the Russian Revolution and the Chinese Revolution were anti-God revolutions, where the British and the American revolutions were built on God. In fact, even so, they had changed so much. And a lot of people think that what has caused this today is because of a certain president we've had. That's a symptom, though, of a deeper thing that has happened in this country. There's some people who think that it's New York and, and California against the heartland, and that's part of it too. Some people also believe that maybe it's nationalist Americans and our freedoms and the British and the globalists, the George Soros's of the world that are caused, and that's part of it too. But the main thing when we hear about let's make America great, what really isn't at the bottom of it all is this gospel and God taken out of the picture. And that we find here that those revolutions, the three atheistic revolutions, were built and bound on Marxists. And what we find that in Europe and in, 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 in Germany over the years, especially in the 1900s, they found that their process of liberation for Marxism did not work. They found that the riots in the streets in the 60s were not working. They were not changing the culture. But what they came up with was even more diabolical. 
they use the term the long ride. And what they were talking about is that they needed to change the culture. And the culture that we live in, and the way they did that was beginning to work in the colleges and in the media, the press especially, and entertainment, and changing the minds of young men and women who now have grown up in that and are changing our world. And so now we're hearing these words like political correctness, postmodernism, tribalism. We heard the 60s with the sexual revolution that changed the society. But we're also hearing today about socialism that has never worked, but yet is still trying to push its way. And when we hear America, America, great, we need to get back to, and we need to pray for, and we need to change and bring this culture back to those final things that God had put in place early on in this nation's history. And what has happened is, it's the same thing that happens all throughout history. God has covenant with his people. He covenanted with Israel. And they went along and all of a sudden they lost out of place with God and the whole culture was wiped out. We see that in the church with the Apostle Paul in dealing with the Galatians. He says, who has bewitched you to leave Jesus Christ and start talking about works again? And then we see it in our old culture. The question is, who's bewitched America? It's that thinking, that critical theory that pulls apart the very underpinnings of this nation and then puts it in place their own values and morals and causes it to come through all these changes. But today, we see how God deals with that with Israel and how he deals with that with us as individuals. And how God can work in a society that tries and is being torn down. The children of Israel were torn apart. They were sent off to Babylon. And they were wound up as people, aliens in the foreign land. I don't know what God's judgment will be for America. We don't know. We hope not. We hope that we, the church, can bring revival back to this. And change it around. But our school and Bishop Carroll and our school has doubled in size because parents are afraid of what is being taught to them in the schools. And today, God is speaking to Israel. And we know what God did in the first 40 chapters of Isaiah. What did he do? He judged Israel. And she wound up having to go into bondage for a while. Yet God delivered Israel again and again because he loved her. We saw that in Egypt, and now we see it again with the Babylonians. And look at what God says. He gives five, several admonitions. He says, hearken to me. Remember what I drew you out of. I loved you, and I made you out of nothing. I've made you a nation. And he says to look with faith and trust me, and I will bring the deliverance. Wake up. He's shaking them right now and saying to them, look at what I've done for you. And I can draw you back and I can bring you back and I can restore you. But don't linger. Don't linger in the past. 
but have faith in me and trust me and wake up and I will change it. I will clothe you. Clothe yourself and put on new garments and trust me that I will bring to you the departure. And look in verse 7 through 12. Depart, depart. But you will not go out in haste. Nor will you go as fugitives for God will go before you. And God for Israel will be your rear guard. You see, this is what God does. God sometimes makes us go through those valleys. And then he brings us back and draws us to new life. And it's so easy to be comfortable in the old life that we have to go back. It's like an old pair of shoes that we put on. And God says, don't linger in that sin anymore. Don't let that past hold you back. Give it over to me. Let it be free. But you know, it's so comfortable. This is the problem we have in America today. We're so comfortable. We're so at peace. We have so many nice things that we're missing it, what God is singing. I know people who linger in sin because it's comfortable. They enjoy it and don't want to give it up. And God wants to break them from the bondage, bring healing to their souls and set them free to be. And here we see God saying to Israel, depart, depart. You can go now. I've sent Cyrus. I've appointed him to set you free from the Babylonians. And you're going to go back and you're going to go and rebuild the walls. And you're going to go back and rebuild the temple and restore a relationship with me in the covenant. But you know, it's hard for some people to do that. It's hard for people to let go. Maybe there's something in your life that's hard for you to let go. That's a secret sin. Remember these words, folks. That sin, when it gets a hold of you, there comes a point, says James, that as you're going in that sin, you are no longer in control and it picks you up like a raging river and now you are trying to stop and you can't. And what it does to you, it takes you further than you ever imagined in your life. And let me tell you, the devil knows that it will extract the interest penalty that is greater than the loan sharks of America and will continue to extract and extract from you until you put it a stop to it. This is what Isaiah is saying to the people of God. This is what he's saying to us. And realize that as you go along, there are going to be detractors. There are people who are not going to want you to stop. They're going to encourage you to keep on. Because you know you get some kickback. The Bible says it in Hebrews. It says the passing pleasures of sin. They're pleasurable. We like them. They make us feel good. Until we have to face God. Or the realities of what we've done. And there are detractors who say, oh, come on, don't give that up. Come on, come on, just one more time. Here. The prophet is saying to Israel, depart, go back, start over new. God's a God who loves you and is a covenant maker and who will bring you 
And look at what he's going to do. He's going to give you this exalted servant who will prosper and he will be on high and lifted up and greatly exalt us and he will deliver you. He's the one. And of course, we know who he was talking about. 700 years before Christ came to bring salvation to the Jews and also to the Gentiles, Isaiah is speaking about this one Jesus. And that when we defile ourselves, we are defiling God. We're turning away from him and giving ourselves over to that sinful moment that just draws us under and makes us drowned. And we lose sight of everything that is important and beautiful in our lives that God has given to us because we are focused on that one thing. And God doesn't want that. And this servant who he calls, if we depend on him and we plead to him, he will bring deliverance to us. But you see, he's not very good looking. <laughs> Look what he says. Who has believed the message? Who's believing this stuff, this faith stuff? And to whom has the armor of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before us like a tender shoot. And like a root out of a parched land, he was no stately form of majesty. That we should look upon him. He wasn't good looking and we weren't attracted to him. And that he was a regular guy in his community, Jesus was nor the appearance that he should be attracted to him, and he was despised and forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with our griefs. And like one whom men hide their face when he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Even though the pagan astrologers came to Bethlehem, they even talked to King Herod, and said they've seen this star that's pointing to this one. They still didn't listen. They spoke to Moses. He spoke through David. He spoke through Isaiah. He spoke through Jeremiah and Daniel and Micah and Malachi and, and Zechariah. That he is coming. And they still didn't hear it. Israel did not hear it. And for us, even though he had the common background... Even though he was, as the Pharisee mocked him, being the carpenter's son, that he's the one who was here to save us, save us from our sin. 2,000 years, people have portrayed Jesus with these beautiful murals of who Jesus looks like. And yet they miss it. Nobody knew what Jesus looked like, and yet the Bible tells us he wasn't really great looking in appearance. In fact, some of the Jesuses I've seen are blue-eyed, blonde hair, and look great. <laughs> but that's not the Jesus the Bible says to us. You see, the world doesn't have place for Jesus in their hearts. The Bible says here that he was despised and forsaken a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. And it's amazing to me, when you present the true Jesus, the pushback again. I was reading of a pastor who wrote in his blog about Jesus not only being the Savior, but the judge whom everybody will stand behind. <laughs> 
and have to stand before. And at that point, he said, you wouldn't believe the pushback he got on Twitter and on his blog. He was told that you're living in the dark ages. He was told, I don't believe Jesus or God are qualified with moral authority to judge mankind. That's the people out there. I've done funerals. I did one the other day. And I cannot believe the looks I get when I share the gospel in a message during the funeral. And the smirks. People get mad. They don't want to hear about the gospel. They don't want to hear that Jesus saves you and that you're a sinner and that you need to be saved by Christ's grace in order to go to heaven. They don't want to hear it. They think it's old-fashioned to think of Jesus as a judge and that the Bible tells us distinctly that we will all stand and give an account for our lives. And those who are outside of Christ will be judged for the things they did and didn't do. And those things will send them directly to hell. And for the Christian, he stands there and we will be judged not to send us to hell. No, we're going to be sent to heaven because we trust in Christ's promise. But they will be sent to heaven. Why? And they will be given. Why are they judged? So that they can receive rewards from the Heavenly Father. And you see, Christ is the one who carried our grief and our sorrow. But the world rejects that. They can't accept that. But they don't want to be held accountable. And so they reject this Christ as the leaders rejected Jesus because he didn't fit into their plan. People reject Christ today because it doesn't fit into their plan. They want to do what they want to do. And so the Bible tells us that he was afflicted. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our, of our well-being fell upon him. And by the scourging he was healed. All of us as sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Wow. You see what the Bible's saying here? Every sorrow that you've had as fallen people have fallen on Christ's shoulders at that point in the cross. All the griefs that you've ever had in this fallen world fell on him. And like in Leviticus, he became our scapegoat, which they took and they prayed the sins of the people on that scapegoat and sent it out in the wilderness to die. So Christ does that for us. And our pain is not the last word. Our sorrows are not forever because Jesus bore them and carried those sorrows. And lifted them from us. And see the world doesn't understand that. I was reading Oz Guinness in his book. No God but God. 
he's a social theorist. And he said, in a periodic time to eradicate religion in Russia, the KGB would go around to churches on Sunday morning and threaten. And even times, at times, beat people for their Christian faith. And there was a time when this one KGB agent came in with his crowd and saw this woman, older woman, kissing the feet of Jesus. And he said, Babushka, which means grandmother in Russian, are you prepared to kiss the feet of our beloved general secretary of the great communist party? (laughs) And she said, why, of course, but only if you crucify him for me. You see, there's no other God that took wounds for us, that died for us and for our sin. Where else in the world can you find in a religion a savior that died for us and for our sins. And you see, all that Jesus went through here, he was pierced by a spear. He was crushed and broken by the punches, the kicks, the pierces, the pulverizing. Upon him was our chastisement, which is the whipping and his wounds that took place for over 14 hours. All those were symbolic of the pain and the suffering that Christ went through for us. And that we have this visible picture of what God was going to do on the cross, which he took all the sin and guilt of his anger towards sin, and he unloads them on Jesus Christ. And the pain and the suffering that we see on the outside is just showing us even greater the pain and the suffering he is. In fact, in verse 11, it says, the anguish of his soul. Jesus is feeling the pain for all that sin of all mankind, trillions and trillions and trillions of sin that he experienced on the cross. And at that point, we see Christ dying for the world. And it all fell upon Christ. That's why when we sin, think about what it costs Christ when we sin in our lives. And the pain he endured for that sin. Think about the ugliness of our sin when we don't repent and utilize the wonderful gift that God has given to us to receive the forgiveness from Christ. I received a text from a sister of a gal that died and she shared with me the brokenness she had in her family. They grew up in a dysfunctional family. Very sad. And the mother and father fought all the time. Finally, the mother and father divorced and they both went different ways. 
And then as they got older, their distance just grew apart and they were angry at each other because one took the side of the other parent. And they were both angry about that. And then the amazing thing happened is the one sister was in church one Sunday and she heard the pastor speaking about God's forgiveness and how much she had been forgiven. And then she realized how much anger and hurt she had towards her sister and evidently her sister had towards her. And that she didn't want to forgive her sister, but the preacher talked about all the suffering Christ did on the cross for her. And then he said, how can you not forgive your sister? This ignited in her heart by the Holy Spirit, a journey of going to her sister and through a long time of working together and her sister knowing the Lord that they repaired the damage and their relationship and loved each other and forgave each other and lived the last 30 years in great relationship and were so sorry they let that last so long and how they robbed themselves by not obeying what God had said. You see, God didn't have to do this for us. Christ didn't have to be afflicted like this. God didn't have to pour his wrath on Jesus on the cross when we hear him screaming, my God, my God, why has suffered? It's that moment that God is pouring all his anger on Jesus for our sin. And he didn't have to do that. Why, God would have been justified, folks, if he just said, you know what, they deserve it. They messed up. And I'm going to let them face the consequences. And guess what? Christ, God, would be 100% justified for feeling that way. But guess what? He didn't do that. Instead, he went to the cross. And before the cross, he even suffered. And the chasing of his well-being was on him. And because of that forgiveness, he forgave us. That's the tremendous exchange. We call that the great exchange because you see, let's say this is our sin. And all of our sin is on this chair. And it's a heavy load. Imagine carrying a, 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 a weighted vest your whole life with 150 pounds on it and you can barely walk. And what God did is picked up that chair and he came over to Christ and he put the whole weight of our sin on him who had no, not need to deserve it. He was perfect. And God put that all on him. And then what did God do? He picked up his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, and took it and gave it to us so that you can see, be seen by God when you die. And he looks at you. He says, come on in because you're pure and perfect without any sin because Jesus paid for it. This is the great exchange. We got the greatest deal in all of eternity because of what happened here. What Isaiah is speaking about 700 years before it happened.
And do you know why? Because of God's love and because of his sin. Because of, of, of our sin and his son that died for us. And you see how it happened. This affliction that came on Jesus was for us. That caused all of our iniquity to fall on Christ. And all his righteousness to go to us. And then look what he says. How did it happen? It's because his son obediently, like a master, like a shepherd, like, following a, a, like a slave following a master, he did the father's will in his life which is to die on the cross. Look what it says. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Why? Because he knew this was God's will that we be saved. And the great exchange happened. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that was silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for our generation who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due, we deserve to get hell. And instead, we were given heaven. His grave was assigned with the wicked and yet he was rich in his death. You see, Jesus died between two thieves. And here, the prophet Isaiah 7, he was assigned to die on the cross for what? Between two wicked men. As a, as a, as a thief, as a robber, as a cheater, as a murderer. And he was assigned that on the cross. Right next to those guys. But look how God provided for him. And yet he was rich in his death. And what we're talking about here, here, God provided through Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to take his body down off the cross and put him in a grave that Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, had and had just been hewed out to put Jesus' body in so that he could be with the rich. And yet, and that's where he rose again. And you see that alignment that he had with the Father's will. And what we find here is that his resignation brought us our eternal life. 700 years before. What's your life like? When you hear the word of God, are you willing to align yourself up to the will of God? Do you really want his will in your life? Do you really understand that? But then here, folks, here Isaiah fills us even in more when he talks about the atonement. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and satisfy by his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify many as we bear their as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot my, him a portion of the great and will divide the beauty and the strong because he poured out himself in death and was numbered among the transgressors and yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. 
what we see here, folks, is satisfaction. You know, there's early church fathers that first thought the satisfaction was the devil was getting satisfied. But that's not true. You notice the satisfaction that comes, it comes from God. You know why? Because God sent his son to free us. And that that sin needed to be paid for. A holy and perfect God can never allow sinners wickedness into his heaven. And so how does God do that? How does God solve that dilemma but by sending his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to the cross? And as perfectly and sinless as he was, takes all that sin and is put on him. And then he can give us the righteousness that gets us into heaven. And that we can be made perfect by his sacrifice that he suffered on the cross. That's where the satisfaction of God comes. And the only way he could be satisfied by giving his son for us and to pay for our sin and then give us his righteousness. That's the only way. And the question is, you see, have you ever been justified? God declaring you as righteous, righteous enough to get into heaven, perfect, pure, without a sin and spot. The only way that comes is through Jesus Christ. And folks, there's a lot of people who don't understand that. They think they can get in by their own works. Mayor Bloomberg, ex-Mayor Bloomberg of New York City, was interviewed. And he said this, he said, I'm telling you that if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in, because I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. So he thinks he's been good enough to get into heaven. And man, he has missed it. Totally. He's not as good as he thinks he is. And much greater sinner than he doesn't even realize he is. Because he needs Christ. And the gospel. And he needs Christ's forgiveness. So that he could get into heaven. And many people, folks, many in our world walk around thinking that they're good enough. The Bible says we need God's Son, Jesus Christ's blood, to cover over our sins and wash it clean so that we can have eternal life. God is angry towards sin. He hates it. And he turned his back on his son as he was on the cross to receive the penalty for our sin so we could be free. Jesus was numbered among the transgressors. That's why he came. He came to give that forgiveness to us so that God could justly justify us before himself and let us into heaven. And there are many people who don't understand that. And they're thinking they can be good enough to get into heaven. 
But my friends, that is a slap in the face of God. If somebody believes that, you're smacking God right in the face. And in close, I want to share with something with you. A story that I've used here before, but a story that I like using when somebody thinks they're good enough to get into heaven by their good works. Because they're not even recognizing what Christ did for them. And they're mocking God. They're slapping him and saying, I don't need Jesus. They're mocking God. Think about this. Let's say you had a good friend. And that friend did something that was horrendous. So much so that they were given the death penalty. And they were found guilty of the sin, of the judgment, and they were given the death penalty. And you loved that friend. You cared about that friend. And you had only one son. And you said, I will go to the governor and ask him to let my friend off. And I will put my son in his place to receive the electric chair. And the governor agrees to it. And the day comes. And your son is executed. And your friend walks free. You accomplish that. And then just imagine, two days later, you walk into a restaurant and you sit in the booth and there's a, two men in the booth behind you. And you hear the one man talking and you recognize it's the fella who just got out of the prison that your son died for and he did get the electric chair. And you're thinking about going to talk to him, but then you're listening to the conversation. And he's saying to the friend, well, yeah, I, well, I'll explain to you how I got out, how I got free from the electric chair. You see, I was a good model prisoner. And I cleaned the latrines, and I picked up the garbage and I swept and I was the model prisoner. Even so, they let me go out into the yard and outside the yard because I was such a good prisoner and I was picking up the garbage outside, so much so that the governor decided to release me. Never once mentioning your son who died for them. How would you feel how do you think God feels when people reject his son's sacrifice and think they can get themselves into heaven by their works? It's a slam in his face. Let's pray together. Father, we just pray for the friends that we have that think these ways. Oh, Jesus, I pray 
that if there's anybody here that thinks they're going to get into heaven by their good works, that right now they are convicted to see that there's only one way to heaven, and that's through the death of Jesus Christ, for them to trust on his sacrifice, his death, to give them eternal life. And I pray if there's brothers and sisters here who know people that way, that they can use this story to get their friends to think and see what they're doing to God when they reject his gift of grace in Jesus Christ. And that, Lord Jesus, that you work through them so that they can bring that person to a saving knowledge of Christ. Lord, we thank you. We're overwhelmed that you would leave heaven and put on this body and sacrifice and go through all that brutality as God and then to die and have all your wrath poured on your son for us. Father, we are so grateful for our salvation. And Lord, please help us to appreciate it in all that goes on in our life and to live for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's rise and receive the benediction and also sing the doxology. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forever. Amen.